Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. I'm Amy Eisenstein, and I am a co-founder of the Capital Campaign Toolkit with my colleague here, Andrea. I am calling in from central New Jersey, where it is cold and cloudy today. Andrea? Well, it's cloudy here, too, in the South Bronx in New York. And as Amy said, I am Andrea Kilstead. Amy and I are the sort of sort of innovators and big idea people at the Capital Campaign Toolkit. Uh, what else can I tell you? Uh, somebody wanted to know how many people there are about. We're up to 138 and it keeps climbing. There are times when we get over two and even 300. So we're delighted to have you and have you spread the word for us. We have an exciting year of these coming up and are busy doing some big planning, which of course is the not of course, which really is once again is the topic of this session. Those of you who were here with us last time, last week, which was before the end of the year, we started talking about planning because of course, Amy was busily planning her goals for the new year. And, and I was saying and thinking how I like to make my plans and then I throw them away. And a few years later, I see if I actually accomplished them. So you'll those of you who were here last time may remember that we we talked about whether you were a planner or not a planner. And I don't know, there was one guy, James, was that his name? Who, who talked about people who are non-planners as being lost. Do you remember that, Amy? Because <laughs> I've actually thought about that for some since last week, where we were getting words to describe people who are planners on one side and not planners on the other. And James, I think, said non-planners the word he used were lost. And I've thought about that. I've thought about the power and the wonder of letting oneself be lost. And so, so James, if you're if you're on, on this call this week, I just want to tell you that I really appreciated it. It gave me a chance to kind of reframe, reframe the notion of creativity and and planning and how it's easy to take a word and have it feel negative and turn it over to feel positive. So it gave me kind of a some good brain food. Well, just to catch anybody up who missed it. And by the way, these are all recorded and posted on the Capital Campaign Toolkit website. I'm happy to post the link in a minute. So if you missed last week's, you can go back and revisit it. But, you know, it was a really important conversation because I think that there are negative and positive connotations that go along with planning and not planning. And you'd think that not planning might be associated more with negative words, but we asked for both were, you know, words associated with planning and non-planning. 
And some of the most positive words we saw, like creativity and spontaneousness and spontaneity and all sorts of other wonderful words to go along with non-planning. So there really were pros and cons on both sides of it. So um, I will post in just a minute the link to last week and all previous toolkit talks. Oh, some exciting news. And then we really will dive in. So after today, starting this week, I think we are turning toolkit talks into a podcast. Uh, and um We're super, super excited about it. And so if you don't join us on Monday afternoons, if you miss it, um, then by Wednesday or Thursday, we will be turning this into a podcast and you can listen at your leisure. So um, to be more more information to come. But anyways, just wanted to share that exciting news. So. Amy, let me get us get us started on today's today's topic. Um, and it, just so that you know, this grew out of a planning process. Amy and I indeed have been working with Bosade Obatupo, who is our wonderful staff member who works on all kinds of things, including planning with us. And we have been making a plan to divide the, the year into quarters. And each quarter, we are going to take on a, a sort of a big topic that's going to drive a lot of what we do, not all of it. But a lot of the content that we do in that quarter this year, this 2021, that's this year, we are actually spending the first quarter doing a fair amount of thinking, writing, reflecting, content providing about capacity building, capacity building campaigns in particular. And it's gotten us thinking about about that as opposed to capital campaigns. Most of you know that that the capital campaign toolkit, you know, sort of its meat and potatoes is capital campaigns, organizations that build new buildings or renovate buildings. And, and we are experts in knowing how to manage, how to help organizations do capital campaigns. We have always thought to ourselves, you know what, it really is possible to use the capital campaign methodology in capacity building. You don't have to be raising money. You don't have to be doing a new building to do a capital campaign. You actually... Buildings are just one way in which organizations increase their capacity. There are many other ways in which you can raise money in the same format through, through capacity building. So we have, this next three months, we will be doing a fair amount of work on that topic. And it got us thinking, thinking got me, got us thinking this morning about really what drives capacity, what drives capacity building and what Two things kick off my my thinking about this. One is that that recently I was talking to the executive director of a foundation that uh, that does very interesting work. It's a fairly small foundation here in New York, and they raise money from donors and they give it away to small small organizations. Um, and she was saying, she said, you know, Andrea, she said, we don't. It is not our plan to be small. We're not small because we choose to be small. We're just small because we haven't cracked the code of how to get big. Right? We have a lot, we, a lot more we want to do. It struck me that that's, that's true of many organizations, right? You are the size that you are and you have the, the program that you have, not because there's not more work to be done or not because you wouldn't choose to be doing more work in your mission area, but because you've sort of gotten stuck where you are. You can't quite figure out how to how to take a big a big drive forward, a big boost forward. 
So that's just just like the word lost stuck in my mind. That's stuck in my mind. And it brings me back to the beginning of my career, and then I will stop talking, where my mentor, the guy who actually got me into this business, and there was one guy who got me into this business, and he was brilliant at working with organizations and inspiring them to come up with big, exciting goals. And I got to see him do that again and again and again after. And he convinced me by watching him that the, about the power of an idea. The, really, the power of an idea to move an organization forward, that Excel spreadsheets are great and tactics are great and plans are great, but there is nothing like a big idea. For those of you who know this term, a BAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal, right? Thanks to Jim Collins, who wrote about that. There is nothing like an idea if you can get people grabbing onto a big idea, a big moonshot idea about where your organization might be and really operationalize that, that actually can take your organization from where you are sort of stuck, right? Thinking about little incremental changes to moving and inspiring people into a whole new way. And if you can make that happen, all of a sudden, more powerful board members will be interested in serving. It may actually inspire leadership changes to people who have more, more, more capacity for, for big growth. It may inspire staff changes. It may inspire fundraising that you would never imagine. It may inspire donors, right, to give you gifts you would never, never imagine. So that's the topic for today, right? Amy, let me stop for a minute. <laughs> I think it's great. And we've got some great questions pouring in, some of which relate to that. So um, I'm almost inclined to dive into some of the yep. questions and then tie them, circle back and tie them to that when when it's appropriate. Yep. Um, so I'm interested in Suzanne's question, how will fundraising change in 2021, given a Biden administration, she says, you know, and, you know, it's interesting. Of course, we all wish we had a crystal ball. Don't I know? Don't I wish that I knew what was coming ahead and I could uh, project what was happening in 2021? You know, on the one hand, I think we could say nothing will change, you know, fundraising goes on um, from administration to administration. Uh, generally, gifts are not motivated by tax savings and, and things like that. On the other hand, you know, it's sort of at the other end of the spectrum, you might say fundraising will be significantly impacted by a Biden administration. You know, do... Uh, you know, and without getting political, you know, if you say, okay, uh, Biden is more potentially pro, and I know I'm going to get pushback, so I'm just going to give an example, and you can yell at me privately. Uh, let's say Biden is is more pro environment, right? And so, does that mean more donors give? to environmental causes when they know that policies are more pro-environment or do they pull back because they figure the government's taking care of it? You know, there are for sure some swings. We saw a lot of people giving to, to causes, you know, in reaction to some of Trump's policies. So, um, you know, how much will it affect 
like I said, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm happy for anybody to chime in in the chat. Part of this um, this conversation is supposed to be uh, a group conversation. So if you have strong feelings or soft, not strong feelings about if fundraising will change in 2021, given a Biden administration, I'd be happy to uh, have you chime in and share your thoughts. But, um, you know, truthfully, I don't think uh, there's going to be a huge change. Um, fundraising ebbs and flows from administration to administration. You can look back through history. It doesn't change that dramatically. Um, so anyways, all right, that, that's my thought on that one. Andrea, if you want to add anything or take the next question. You know, I think I think that's right. And I think when in doubt about things like that, turn your attention to building relationships with the donors who are right in your corner, no matter what administration there is. There are going to be changes one way and changes another. Honestly, you can't do anything about it. What you can do something about is is having big ideas that are exciting, of pulling people together around those and working like mad to build the relationships with the people who are most important to your fundraising. That's never gonna lead you wrong. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't speculate on it. I'm all for that. It's an interesting question, but operationally it doesn't get you very far, I don't think, at least not until something significant changes, you know, policy-wise. Yeah. All right, good. So uh, somebody else anonymously is asking about, you know, they have a different, a challenging culture at their organization. Um, folks, it's not a listening culture or a planning culture or an appreciation culture. So uh, that makes fundraising challenging. So what advice do we have for managing up and changing the culture and conversation with an executive director and a board chair who don't necessarily value those things? I'm so glad you asked that question because I suspect that a lot of people on this call and everywhere are in exactly in that situation where you have ideas, you know what should be done, you want to do things, and you either don't have access up in the organization or you have a leadership that simply isn't able to or willing to to change. You know, I I may have said this before, but I'm going to say it again, it bears saying, and that is that every organization is perfectly constituted to be exactly the way it is. Now, let me say that again, because it's a complicated and a powerfully important idea. Every organization is perfectly constituted to be exactly the way it is. Now, why do I bring that up now? Because if you want to change an organization, you are going to encounter resistance. Like day follows night, you are going to encounter resistance, right? Every organization has sort of a, you know, it's like a ball held together by rubber bands, right? And you pull the piece out here and this goes that way and you pull it back and that goes. Everyone is stuck in sort of a stasis. That means that if you want to make a change, Right. If you want to make something change structurally in your organization, you have to be very, very smart and careful about it. You have to look and see, Okay, who has the power? What piece can we pull out like a hand grenade? Sometimes I think about that like hand grenade. You know, you pull out one little piece and the whole thing falls apart and then it comes back together in a different frame. You have to look carefully at where the power is in your organization. And what you can do to inspire people, someone who has the power, and of course, there are people who have more 
or less power in organizations. You can lead from behind by looking carefully at that and figuring out what are the ways in which you can you can do something that might inspire those people to actually be willing to make a change. Now, you know, for board members, challenge of a board member trying to make a change is that when you make a change as a board member, guess what? You are you are left holding the results. You can't decide you're going to blow the thing up and then go skittering away. If you've if you've made a change, you have to be willing to take to actually own that change and work with it. So your point is a really important one. All, most people who are in the development director position face it and do some studying about where the po- real power is in your organization. And that will give you, that will guide you on how to, how to move forward and see if there is any opportunity. If there is not, and it's frustrating, get a new job. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I say that all the time and it's not a message that people want to hear. And I mean, we say that a little bit lightly in this climate. It's not so easy to get another development job. So uh, think hard, long and hard about that. But I think sometimes it is time to say, you know what, the culture of this organization is not a good fit for fundraising or for my style, and it is time to make a change. You know, on the other hand, I truly encourage you to try and work at the organization and with the people that you have there. You know, sometimes change just takes a suggestion, um, you know, uh, offering up a, a different way of doing things and people are could be more open to than you think. They may just not have thought about doing it a different way. They may not have considered something. So even offering suggestions, I think, is a good way to start the ball rolling. But I do like what Andrea said and want to emphasize figure out who has the power on the board. Who do people listen to? And, you know, talk to that person one-on-one and say, hey, you know, have you ever thought about this before? Do you think we could do it differently? What do you think the pros and cons are of thinking about it this way or that way? And seeing if they'll make a suggestion. Sometimes it just does take one person. Um, I do encourage you to listen to last week's toolkit talk because we did have a lot of conversation about how to deal with an executive director who's not a planner um, and and what to do about that. So anyways, all right. Um, Rebecca Thompson has posted a question. Rebecca, are you the Rebecca in my neighborhood? I have a Rebecca and Thompson in my neighborhood. I doubt it is, but uh, you'll know if you're my neighbor. Um, but anyways, when it's appropriate, Rebecca writes, would love your thoughts on whether to do a campaign of pledges to collect money later rather than donations up front. It's a capital campaign and what if you don't meet your goal? and software programs. So um, I'm gonna throw it to the, uh, you know, to everybody in the chat box in terms of software programs that you suggest for donor CRMs. But I think Suzanne is actually asking a similar question about a campaign with appreciated assets versus checkbook charity. So plan gifts versus current gifts. So let's tackle um, pledges, and collecting payments and gifts of cash versus gift plan gifts um, and assets sort of all in one one ball. You want me to start, Andrea, or you want to start? Why don't you start? Yeah. So first of all, I would never have a campaign that's exclusively 
assets or future pledges? Why would you not collect money right away when you can? So, uh, you know, I would never set up a campaign that said we're just collecting pledges. You know, no, no thanks for cash now. That makes no sense to me. Um, of course, you want the money as soon as possible so that people don't renege on their pledges, not that it happens so often, but you know, you want to collect the money as soon as possible. You need the money, you should collect the money. Um, so second, you want to have as many options for donors as you possibly can. So some donors are going to want to pay right away and upfront. Others are going to want to spread their pledge payments out over time, but they should probably be making one payment in the next few months, right? And then they can make one the following year and the following year. We recommend generally a three-year pledge period. I don't like to see it go to five or more years unless it's an extraordinarily large gift and that's the only way the donor will do it. Um, you know, generally you need the money within three years. So that's a, a reasonable pledge payment for time frame for most campaigns. Um, and, you know, I want all donors to use a combination of checkbook charity, as Suzanne's writing, and appreciated assets. So we call that a blended gift. Part of the gift is given in cash or by check or credit card or with stock. Um, and then other, other parts of the gift might be again, stock, I should have said for appreciated assets or other kinds of assets like property or uh, other kinds of planned gifts. So uh, Andrea, you wanna add anything to that? Um, you know, one, one of the things that I, that I sometimes think about is that people often give an annual a recurring gift from their checkbooks, from their you know, easily accessible assets. And think about, they may think about making capital gifts out of a whole host of other things. Right. I mean, they may be planned gifts of one sort or another or appreciated assets of many different kinds or or, you know, so so I, I think about recurring giving sort of which you give every year and the expectation that you, that you will give it every year and gifts that you give occasionally because they help an organization really step up and move forward and giving those gifts are more complicated and, and should should require more more complication. Um, I just want to refer say that Karen Wilbrew has suggested that we that we not short shortcut and I think that's right things like giving businesses or appreciated assets of other kinds not just not just estate gifts, and I, I think that's exactly right. And and we tend to focus on on you know bequests and bequest intentions because they are by far the most common um, of planned gifts that come in. But they certainly are are not not the only ones. So thank you for that for that reminder. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, the largest gifts are gifts of assets. It's for sure. You collect a check of $100,000, you've left money on the table. So when it comes to asking someone for a really big gift, you need to have a complex conversation about where their wealth is and what they're willing to give and on what terms. That, that certainly is true. And you're not likely to have that when it comes to a recurring annual fund gift where they're more like, people are more likely to do, to do something that is, that is simpler. Um, let's see. 
All right. So Cammy's asking, how do I redirect a board set on a capital campaign very soon within a couple of months when they refuse to acknowledge that planning is essential and none of the planning has occurred? <laughs> I have an answer. Go ahead. I have an answer for you, Cammy. You know, the, the <laughs> definitions are really important, right? How you use language is important. And you can define a capital campaign as all kinds of ways, right? Some people say a capital campaign begins when you start asking for gifts. Other people say the capital campaign is beginning when you start your planning. So... <laughs> So I wouldn't say we can't start a capital campaign now because we haven't done our planning. I would say, yes, indeed, you can start a capital campaign right now. And the way to start it is by going through this planning process and by having a training for the board and by figuring out what our goals and objectives are and by coming up with a gift chart. Right. All of that is your capital campaign. So rather than saying to your board, you know, you're foolish and you want to do it tomorrow and we're never going to be successful, you say how great that you have the energy and inspiration to want to start it tomorrow. I totally agree with you. Let us do a board training. Let us come up with, let's get a little committee together to put together our our goals and objectives, right? Let us get this campaign rolling and out the gate. That's a (laughs) win-win. So, Cami, what I want you to do is go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit website and sign up for a free strategy session with us, and we will help you outline and identify what are the next steps for you and your board to take so that they feel like you're getting started on a campaign today or tomorrow and that you feel like the proper planning and strategy is in place for you to feel good and secure and and solid in that. So uh, that's what I'm gonna suggest. All right, Andrea, next question. Do you have one? Oh, well, Karen has asked this challenging question. I have trouble reading so many words in the the Q&A. I think I get the gist of it. You've got a whole complicated situation going on with offshore landlords who are jacking up the rent and the rate and they want you to sign sign them. You've got a whole bunch of stuff going on that that, uh, is putting pressure on you to, to get your land purchased for a capital campaign for a new facility. The question is, do you use the negative stuff when you talk to your donors or not? That's the gist of the question, I think. Is that your take on it, Amy? Uh, you know what? I let you read it. Okay. All right. I think that's, that's the gist of the question. And, the, and and I think there's nothing nothing wrong with, with, with urgency, but you have to be careful that you don't make it so negative that it sounds like, you know, like you are mismanaging or in a situation that is mismanaged. So, by all means, you can talk about the fact that there is urgency and immediacy and you have to get going because you must be out of your current space due to circumstances beyond your control. That's perfectly fine. Um, but don't take it too far. Focus instead on how much money do you need to raise for the building? How quickly can you move that ahead? Can you put together a pot of, mon- a pot of money for the land first and then move into a campaign? Do you have plans for the new building with the new land? So be careful. You're right to raise it as a question of whether it's negative or positive, right? A little bit of negative news goes a long way. Uh, Urgency is good, but not to the point where you're bad-mouthing other people around it. Good. All right. Uh, The next question comes from an 
anonymous attendee. Uh, so the end of the year uh, comprehensive campaign fundraising was exhausting. So listen, we should give a shout out and a kudos to all of you who did all of these calls and outreach for the end of the year. Yes, uh, I hope you were able to take a few days off or will be taking a few days off in the coming weeks. Um, so the question is, should I back off campaign fundraising for January and focus on planning for the year and thank yous for those that gave in the last couple of months? You know, so of course we feel strongly that you should be doing planning, that you should take time out to do some planning. But of course um, that doesn't mean that you'll take time off from fundraising. Thanking donors is part of fundraising. So absolutely. You should be thanking donors uh, this week and next week and the following week until all your year-end donors are thanked um, prior to any more asking of them again, of course. So uh, when you say, um, should I back off campaign fundraising? I mean, it depends on what you are talking about. If you're talking about, a, you know, annual fund can be referred to as campaign and capital campaign is referred to as campaign. So I'm not quite sure uh, what you mean here, but I, you know, fundraising is ongoing. So the question is, have all your donors been thanked? Do they understand how their gift was used? You will do that before you even consider asking them for another gift. So Andrea, wanna add anything to that? No, no, I think that's right. Good advice. Uh, Wendy has asked this question. Wendy, just a reminder, if you can put your questions in the Q&A box rather than the chat, then it's easier for us to keep track of what we've answered and what we haven't. Um, but I do see your see your question here about about a comprehensive campaign versus a capital campaign or a traditional campaign that back to the definition of words. Right. These things are often used not used accurately. And what you may mean by a comprehensive campaign is not what I might mean by a comprehensive campaign. So it is a it is a an important question. Typically the word comprehensive campaign is used to in, to say that it includes a whole bunch of stuff, including your annual fund um, revenue for the years of the campaign. So if your campaign is gonna extend three years, in a comprehensive campaign, you might include money for the building, money for new program, money for to increase your fundraising, and three years of annual fund projected to increase by a certain percentage every year. And that would create a total goal, which of course is gonna be bigger than your just a goal for your building, right? And then you would wrap all of your fundraising into that goal. Right. So the question is, how big is the goal? What is included in the goal? Do you want to combine your your annual fund revenue into your campaign goal or not? I generally advocate not doing that, but there are lots of people who would fight with me, including some of our toolkit advisors, actually. So um, so why do I not like that? Because my brain likes clarity. I mean, I just have a brain that wants things to be clear. And I think it's clearer if you keep them separate. Many people don't care so much about clarity as I do. They'd rather have just a big goal where you lump everything all together. And that gives you all kinds of places to hide, in my opinion, anyway. It gives you places to hide when you're not so clear. Clarity makes you be, doesn't give you any hiding places. So, so I would look carefully at what you mean by a comprehensive campaign. Um, I, the other question that that you're 
the other thought your question brings up for me is you can decide as you decide about a campaign goal, comprehensive other or otherwise, when you start to count, right? Many campaigns pre start count from a year or two back. Right. They might say, OK, last year we raised we raised 10 million dollars and we raised a million dollars in covid funding. We're going to count that towards our campaign, even though the official time of your campaign planning is just starting this year. There is nothing saying you can't do that as long as it is captured accurately in your campaign policies. So if you want to include your million dollar COVID fund, fine. That doesn't mean it's a comprehensive campaign. What means it's a comprehensive campaign is that you're including your the estimates for your annual fund over the next over the next years, the period of your campaign. Okay, is that too technical? No. no. Perfect. All right, good. So somebody else is asking, how can I talk to a board member one-on-one if what you have to say likely reflects negatively on the ED who has a strong revenge orientation? So, yeah, go ahead, Andrea. You know, what I'm going to say is this. It is a hard lesson to learn sometimes. But the reality is that if you don't respect, if you can't get on the same page with the person at the head of your organization, you shouldn't be there. You must respect the hierarchy. You don't have to like them. You don't have to go sing their praises, but you have to respect them. That says that you can't go to a board member and gripe about your executive director. It's a, it is a bad idea. It will only get you into trouble. Simply don't do it. Uh, And I was going to say something slightly different. I agree with you. However, if you feel strongly that the executive director is not appropriate or the right fit for your organization and doing damage to your charity and your organization, then you should be going to the board, but be prepared to quit and or be fired. However, if there's an executive director in place who is negatively affecting the organization, you should be saying something. Your your, um, allegiance is not necessarily to the executive director, it's to the organization and to your clients and to your donors. And the board has to know that the executive director is damaging. However, you should fully expect to be fired and or be prepared to resign. occasionally it won't happen, the executive director. You know, what What do you want the outcome to be? If you're hoping the executive director gets fired, um, you know, anyways, okay. I think- I mean, you can go to the executive director, right? That's well, what I would suggest. You can go to the executive director. Well, then- If you have real problems with what's going on in the executive director, that's where you should register them. Not, not with the board member. It is not your- you are hired by the executive director who reports to the board. In my opinion, you have to respect that that hierarchy. That doesn't mean you have to stay there. Doesn't mean you have to. You can't talk to your executive director about your concerns, right? But it means that you can't try to build a team of people who are going to come after the executive director. It's bad practice. It's it will only get get the organization. It will only be only have negative results. 
And that's a hard lesson, actually. And and there's lots of good advice from everybody else in the chat as well. So lots of people commiserating and who've gone through the same experience. Okay. Um, So Niva, I see your question about Africa. You know, I have to say that we don't have a ton of experience with charities in Africa. I seriously suggest that you connect with other NGOs and church groups in your region um, who have a better sense and experience uh, fundraising in your part of the world. I think we'll leave it at that. Um, Okay. But if anybody else in the chat box has lots of fundraising experience in Africa and wants to chime in, by all means, we are a community and offering lots of advice and assistance. So, all right. Uh, Okay, Barbara, we have many donors who bundle their gifts so that they give every other year to get max benefit if they have a uh, donor advised fund. How can we either maximize this or compensate for the increased infrequency of giving? I don't know that you can. I don't know. What would you say? Well, I mean, I think donor advised funds, sometimes money comes from donor advised funds and you don't know where it's coming from, right? That's that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it is a problem. It is a problem with donor advised funds. I don't like the idea of bundling gifts. I don't like the idea of asking once in a, in a comprehensive campaign, for example, for someone to give annual fund over three years. I don't like to break the regular year in, year out, um, you know, relationship with a donor. I suppose what you can do is that that might be a good reason to actually have a, have a great fundraising event every year. Because that's one way to stay in touch with all of your donors, even because it's a different kind of a funding, right? They're not going to. So if you can find other ways to ask them that aren't just asking, asking for the standard gift, that would be that would be a good thing to do. It's a it's a challenge. These donor advised funds are amazing and a challenge. Carol, I see you're giving great um, suggestions and recommendations, but they're only coming to me and Andrea. So please do go ahead and drop down your box um, and send your your comments to all attendees. All right, Uh, Suzanne, can you address, uh, oops, why does a donor get maximum benefit? You know, I I don't know, I don't know why a donor bundles. Um, I, I I don't know enough about donor advised funds. If anybody else knows, let us know. I'll have to research it for next time. Send me an email. I'll look into it. Okay. Uh, Kathy says, I have a registered 501c3 and plan to open a domestic violence shelter. Is there a recommended fundraiser to start with uh, to acquire money for a building? Oh, Kathy. You know, it's, Kathy. Isn't it interesting that we know just from the way you phrase that question that you're not thinking quite the way you should, right? Because the word fundraiser for us is a, is a giveaway, just so you know. That means to us, you know, some kind of an event or, or a crowdsourced fundraiser or a fundraiser indicates or is a, it says to me that you're going to do something broad based and see who's going to give to your building. And the way you have to get going on doing your shelter is to pull together a small group of people who feel 
passionately about what it is you're doing, who have the resources to get you going, who have significant gifts to get you going, people who have who have the passion and the money to be able to to be anchor investors in what you're doing. And you're not going to do that through a fundraiser. You're going to do it by identifying people and getting them on board individually and as a small committee to help you put together some some initial capital for your project. Do you agree, Amy? Yes, absolutely. All right. Uh, Caitlin's question. Uh, we've reached 70% of our capital campaign goal. So kudos to Caitlin. Excellent. Uh, now they're in a position of soliciting a tier of donors that have they've not kept in close touch with. We must reach 80 to 85% of our goal before going public, which, you know, certainly uh, that may be the case in your case. And Andrea, I would encourage you to say something about that. Uh, what are your suggestions for how to reconnect with and bring in this group to speed up to speed on our project in a relatively short time frame? Um, which part of that question do you want to tackle first? Uh, well, the question of how much money you have to raise before going public is, a, is an interesting and a good question. And that has everything to do with how much money you think you can raise after you go public which may sound totally obvious, except that I think people have this sort of standard formula in mind. And the standard formula is only so good if you really can raise the rest of the money from broader, you know, broader fundraising mechanisms from smaller, smaller gifts. The um, if you need to raise 15 percent of your money before you actually you know, kick off the public phase of your campaign, you might want to go back to some of your initial donors to, who gave you large gifts to begin with. I don't know how, how long the time has been, but if they've already paid off their pledges, they may be willing to put an extra year in, or even if they hadn't, they may be willing to add another year. Uh, that's one way to think about it. And the people you haven't kept in, you know, now, now you have to solicit the tier of donors you haven't kept in close contact with. And that, of course, is just what happens. We tend to be in close contact with the people who can give us the most money and in sort of contact with the people who can give us the least money. And the middle donors are the ones that fall away. That happens again and again. You're not alone, Caitlin, in doing that. Um, and I would get busy on it, is what I can tell you. I would get very busy. I would make a list of the 20 people in that category, in that middle category. And I would figure out, I would sit down with your team and figure out, okay, what's the best way we can really ramp up our, our relationships with these people? Treat them as though they are major donors for a period of time. See how, how you know, contact them individually, one after another. Call them, tell them what's going on and see where, solicit them, right? Behave as though they're your largest donors because for now they actually are, <laughs> right? I mean, that's one way to think about it. Good. So listen, I want to go to Laura's question and then I want to circle back for the last 10 minutes to our BHAGs, right? We didn't really focus on our big, big, hairy, audacious goals. So we're going to wrap up in just a minute with, with a conversation on BHAGs. Um, but Laura's asking, uh, should we wait to talk about the second house until we have the green light to go? Or how do we craft a we're probably going to do this uh, project message? Andrea, you always have good thoughts on that. 
You give me the hard ones, Amy. Everything is a crapshoot, right? Every it all, it's all, it really is all. And you know what you need to do is as you talk to people about it, you need to tell them. And that's the answer. The answer is don't pretend. Say, we're 90% sure this is going to happen. There is an outside chance that it's going to fall apart, but we are raising money for it. So when it does happen, we're ready to go. And if for some reason it doesn't, right, then we will rejig and we're still going to do this project. But I just, you know, you should know here's what's going on. So there's nothing like being transparent and clear. Again, see, my brain likes clarity. Perfect. So go there. Perfect. All right, let's let's talk for a minute or two about BHAGs or a couple minutes about BHAGs. We've got big, hairy, audacious goals on our mind. And you know what? That's what capital campaigns really are about. Um, and so, you know, how do you think outside the box? What is a big, hairy, audacious goal for your organization that is is pretty far out there, but not so far that people will just, you know, throw up their hands and walk away. But how do you think about these moonshot campaigns and, and come up with a goal that's, that's exciting to people? I mean, honestly, that's why donors tap their assets, right? We're not looking for a checkbook gift as we've been talking about earlier in the session. We're looking for people to dig deep and say, you know what? that is worth my life insurance policy or some appreciated stock or, you know, a personal property or jewelry or whatever it is. But, you know, really thinking about what do I, what do I have, what would get this organization to the next level? And that's the kind of big, hairy, audacious goals that we're talking about when thinking about a capital campaign. You know, Jerry Panis in one of his books or some, something he wrote, it gave, gave this wonderful story that so captures this idea. It, the story is that, is that there was a, a major donor in a community and he stepped forward and to a relatively small art museum, he came up, he gave, made a gift of a million dollars. It was a, a university that the guy had supported for a long time in the same town, right? And this very same year, the guy gives $100,000 to the university. And the president of the university comes to the donor and says, hey, Joe, you know, I really see that you gave us $100,000 this year and you gave this little art museum a million dollars, right? What did we do wrong? And the donor said, you didn't have a million dollar idea. <laughs> I that really captures it, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to do with the size of the, with the size of the institution. The art museum had come up with an idea that was big enough and bold enough and caught this guy's attention. And he said, yes, I'm going to fund it and wrote, wrote a check. So that's the idea of, of a big, of a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. And I, I find that it's, I just wrote a post, a blog post on this for the toolkit this, which should come out this week. And I was writing it. I thought to myself, you know, in all the years I've been in the fundraising business, I have never had an organization introduce itself to me or an executive director, development director by saying, you know, Andrea, we are, in, we are a remarkable organization and we are really undertaking this big, 
hairy, audacious goal. And once we have settled on that, it has brought powerful board members to us. It has enlivened us. It has made us excited because in five years, we have determined that we are going to solve the problem that, uh, of X in this community, right? Nobody has ever said that to me as they've introduced their organization to me. But how sad is that? Right. I mean, would I want to work for an organization like that? You betcha. Right. Would I say, all right, let us get to work. I can help you make this happen. Yes. Instead, they come and they say, oh, we need money. Right. Can you help us raise money? So let's let's hear from everybody. I mean, Donna has challenged people, I think. And uh, let's see, who was it? Uh, it was Suzanne. I don't know. Uh, somebody. Um, so what's your big, hairy, audacious goal? Let's let's see in the chat. Can you put it into five words? Uh, maybe, oh, it was Donna. Yes, it was Donna. What's your million dollar idea? Right. Thank you, Donna. So um, I'm just curious if you're working on a campaign this year or you'd like to in the future, what's your big, hairy, audacious goal for your organization, for you personally? Let's, um, you know, Okay, Michelle, I'm gonna pick on you. Um, double our endowment. What does that do for your organization, right? Is, is, is doubling your endowment inspiring for a donor? That does not tell me anything about what your organization does, right? So keep going. I mean, I like it, but why, why will that matter? So let me pick another one here to build a new school. Now, building a new school might well be a big, audacious goal, but the way you would frame it is not, well, of course, you're going to talk about building a new school, but the frame for it is who you're going to serve and the difference it's going to make in your community, right? That's these big, hairy, audacious ideas have to do not with what, what you want to do, how you're going to spend the money immediately, but with the result of of what of what happens when you've spent that money? That's Cynthia, what creates. Cynthia's it. got it, Andrea. Cynthia's got it, and you guys are not writing to everybody, so only we can see it. But Cynthia's going to end homelessness in Central Texas. There right? is a or HIV homelessness, right? right? Uh, specific, concrete, tangible, um, right? That we can wrap our brains around. Yes, I want to end homelessness in Central Texas. I'm with you, right? <laughs> um, all right, excellent. Yes. Yeah, so, and again, you know, Karen. So, it's great to create a one-of-a-kind healing center for people and animals. That is indeed a, a big goal. But what I, I'd love you to turn it around and say, what difference is it going to make? Right. The 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 question to ask yourself, and it's really frustrating when people like me do this. I get it. Is so what? So you're going to build a new school. So what? You're going to have a fancy new building. So what? So you're going to have a healing center. So what? What's the difference? What's the problem in the society? Kit is going to destigmatize mental health. Yes. Okay. All right. right. 
Yes, yes. And Donna, who was in our improv class, says, yes, and. Yes, and. <laughs> yes, and. All right. And Anne's going to provide free breast health care for all uninsured Oklahoma women. I love it, right? Um, so, and prevent breast cancer, right? Breast cancer prevention for all women in Oklahoma. Now, here, here's the neat thing about coming up with ideas like this, that if you if you, if you and your organization, it's one thing for you to come up with them, but this cycles back to the earlier question, which is how do you lead up, right? How do you, how do you get, you can't make the decision that this is what your organization is going to do. Your executive director and board chair and board are going to make these decisions. So how can you instigate some kind of an exercise, a process where you get your executive director and your board chair to lead a process to get board members and and maybe even major donors to help come up with this in a way that they're excited by it. That's your challenge. And actually in the post I just wrote, I put one of the exercises from Andy's in my book about the headline exercise. All right. So yeah. it'll be out tomorrow, it'll right? It'll be out tomorrow. Keep, Excellent. Take, take, a, take a look at it. Um, there is something about a big idea and then, of course, a plan, right? And to, to and a timetable that all of a sudden gets you out of the mud, right? Gets you out of the kind of day-to-day slog, which isn't to say you don't have to do that too. But it takes the courage and the vision to actually step up and say, here's what we're after. Here's what we're about. Here's the problem we want to solve, we as an organization has, have the courage to take that on and the will to take that on will have lots of consequences in terms of the people who are willing to get on board with you, the money donors are willing to give to you, the excitement that it creates among the staff who actually sees that they're just not coming to work and slogging through every day, the fun it is to fundraise and talk to donors Right? The consequences of this thinking are big. And, and this is the time of year when it's important. And to tie this all the way back around to the round, this is something around which you can do a capacity campaign. Right? It's like, oh, yes, this is why this all fits together. Yes. So, you know, we want to talk to you about your capacity campaigns. If you're just starting to plan and you'd like Andrea or I or uh, one of our advisors to come do a board training for you virtually to talk to your board members, to talk to your executive directors, we are certainly available. That's part of the suite of services at the Capital Campaign Toolkit. So we would love to uh, talk to you about your upcoming board retreat or board training or a solicitation training for your, to get you ready for your campaign. So whoever it was that I just answered about the case for support, I send you capitalcampaignmasters.com because if in that blog you do a search under case for support, it's going to give you a lot of resources which you can look at. There's, I've written a lot on this subject over a long period of time. Most of, a lot of that writing is in capitalcampaignmasters.com and there's a pretty good search or what do you call it, index for that. So start there um, and see if you can find some stuff. 
All right, guys, listen, be on the lookout. You should be getting an email this week or next to know how these toolkit talks will be in your favorite podcasting app. We're super excited that this is going to be turned into a podcast and you can listen at on your way to work, on the treadmill, on your walk, wherever you are. Um, but of course, we love to see you live because then you can participate in the chat um, and ask your questions live, which of course you won't be able to do in the podcast, but we're super excited that you're here and we're we're excited for you to be off to a great start to the new year. So Amy, next month on February 4th, our yeah. new mini campaign cohort is gonna start up. Yes. We have about half, it's about half full already. So don't, don't tarry. We've got, I think, four or five more spots. So if you're interested in that, email us. We will send you to the right place. But these mini campaigns are fantastic. Some of you are on, on, the, on this call have, have done them, raise $100,000 or more in eight weeks. And they have been remarkably successful. So they're fun, engaging. Yes. So Carol, you're asking about boot camps. This mini campaign is a boot camp. Go either email us or go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit website and click on, I think, how we help. Um, and there's a mini campaign. It's an eight week boot camp to raise $100,000 or more. And we're starting the next cohort on February 4th. So, all right, guys, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.